This is LifeLinks with a DL Link. 101.9 High FM, one minute past 12 o'clock. Good afternoon, and how are you? Well, I'm back after two weeks of a bit of a break with all the Chagim. They are behind us. And as I said to a group of women the other day, we can all just let out that collective sigh of relief. They're over. We love the Chagim. But I've got to tell you that wondering if there's enough chicken bought, if we've got enough food, if we've got enough seating, it's behind us. And we have only, uh, what, December holidays? And it's just a beautiful time of the year. It's an absolutely glorious day. It's so lovely to be back with you. I hope that you are well. We have such a wonderful, wonderful treat for you today. Um, So just make sure that you stay exactly where you are. And if you do have a call coming in or a meeting you have, have planned, cancel it. You've got a good few seconds in which to do it. Of course, this is the DL Link show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. And the DL Link, which is just a phenomenal organization, was founded by Michelle Goodman and Jackie Artsiller all the way back in 2010, where they started looking after just a few families, nurturing, providing a safe space where patients faced with cancer, as well as their families, can go to for support. And seven years later, well over 700 families rely on the DL link just for this huge emotional support, uh, uh, support um, and just extension and just to be held. And in fact, um, this wonderful, wonderful warrior that we have in the studio today and who's going to be sharing her story and telling us about her magnificent book. Um, just really one of the, what really stands out in the book is the support and how much that carried her um, along her journey. So let me tell you what you can expect today. Lauren Siegel has written a book called Cancer, A Love Story. And she talks about, it's a memoir, it is so exquisitely, exquisitely written. And she talks about how she has faced uh, cancer um, not once or twice, three, four times, in fact. Um, And how she wrote these letters along the way. She wrote all of these lists, her feelings. She expressed everything and she finally decided to put it into a book for all of us. Um, And I think it's the greatest, greatest gift, certainly for herself, but... We are also the recipients of this gift. So Lauren's going to be talking to us in a moment. And then because it is October and because we are looking at breast cancer, um, we're going to be talking about reach for recovery. Um, Stephanie Jacobs, who's the chairperson, will be telling us a little bit more about it. And then we have the beautiful Edith Fenter in the studio, who's going to also be talking about that as well as a fundraising event, um, the, the Celsi playing for Pink Ladies Invitational Polo. And, you know, where the money goes and, um, wow, we're going to be chatting um, um, to Edith also just in a few minutes' time. But first, Lauren, welcome. Thank you, Nikki. So lovely, nice to be lovely here. to have you in the studio. As I was saying, you've been so busy. It has been an unexpectedly busy time <laughs> since the launch of my book. I, I have been, I, I suppose we all multitask every day, but launching a book is something that on top of an everyday job is is does make one slightly um, frantic. Frantic, <laughs> but also, I mean, we were just saying off air. You just didn't 
expect the kind of response that you have had to this book. And everyone is talking about it. And it's not just because of your story that under the age of 55, being diagnosed with cancer four times, it's not just the fact that we go along but it is the quality of the writing. It is the exquisite writing. You take us on such a beautiful, beautiful journey. So it really, it's all of those. It's surprising in, in every single way. Thank you. It Thank really you so is. much. I mean, I have, I, you know, as I said to you off air, I, you, you put a story out there and it sort of gets a life of its own mm. and you don't always understand the reader's responses to the book, but yeah. there have been a consistently generous response to a story that I think isn't told enough, perhaps. Definitely not, and certainly not in the way that you've told it. But you are a writer. You've been writing books for other people for many years. Tell us a little bit about that. So my background is a historian and curator. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've written many history books, and I worked on Constitution Hill, uh, the home of the Constitutional Court. I created the Heritage Precinct along with a team of people some 12 years ago. And I'm working back there now because we're actually building a museum of the Constitution. As we speak, the the ground is being turned. There is a whole new building coming. There's a new museum and archive. So my passion in my in my life has been history and history writing. Um, And so this kind of move into context is very important. Very important. Um, I I worked all the way through the different cancer episodes, less than I am today, but certainly my work was very important through it all. But But the book and writing a memoir became something very different to writing a story of the history of Soweto or Constitution Hill. I'm sure. So, but, but writing was something that you always enjoyed. Absolutely. Encouraged in your household? I mean, when did you discover that writing was something that you connected with. It's so funny that you ask that because I think that my very first form of communication with my parents when I had a fight was to write a note to try and explain myself. Really? So I, I think that there is a legacy that I didn't even realize. Really? That <laughs> I preferred the written word at that point to the spoken. It was always a place for me to clarify my my thoughts. And it certainly was that in writing this book. It was a place where I could think about what was happening and create order in a world that had lost its order. Mm, process it. Process yeah. the whole thing. I'm fascinated to know, did you give your parents the letters? Or was it just your processing? Do you know what I'm saying? Was it something you just needed to work through? Was it important that they read it? No, they read it. And okay. my father actually was a great letter writer back. So I have a whole box of his letters oh, to me. Oh, do you? Um, um, yeah. Let's treasure those. Yeah, they're really very, must. very important to me. Mm. Um, so I think that there was always the sense of the written exchange as part of an emotional world that I had created for myself from very young. So now deciding to write your story, and it's not just, we don't skim the surface. There's no skimming here. <laughs> we go so into your story. It's mm-hmm. such an intimate sharing of your experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to say it again. I mean, I, when I talk about it, my, my throat actually tightens because, and I'll tell you why, because I'm, I'm such a visual person and you painted the pictures. You know, I feel like I went on this journey with you. And I think that that's possibly why people are having that kind of response mm-hmm. because you took them very intimately on, on your journey. And, and your journey really starts when, when you were very young and, well, Young at varsity, and and you were diagnosed with cancer. You had mm. th- three stage melanoma cancer. Mm. You 
at so 23. That, that's when your journey begins, at the age of 23. Yeah. And it is only when I was really writing this book that I went back to process that cancer because it, it kind of passed me by mm. as one does when one's a student, you don't have a focus on your mortality in any which way. Mm. So I kind of had not really incorporated into my life journey what had happened to me. It was in retrospect that I wrote that story and really pieced together the import it had in, in terms of cancer and being 23 and I it's so interesting to look back and look at how you handled it at 23 mm. do, I mean do you think that you it was a brilliant coping mechanism I'm, I'm talking about coping or do you think that you were just really avoiding it and and that's why you had to re- revisit it or was it a very healthy way of dealing with it at the time you know now that you can go back <laughs> as I say in the book Love loomed very large for me at that point. I just met the person that I was going to marry. I didn't Mm. know that then. Mm. But I was much more absorbed in my love life than my cancer life at that point. (laughs) So I think if I'd maybe been in a stable relationship, Mm. it's where my love story started. And that maybe I hadn't ever thought of it, but the title of the book was actually embedded in that first cancer experience. Mm. It was so much for me about a love story. Mm. Um and much less about the cancer. Mm. So it was a very helpful thing to have that as an interest. I don't know if repressing it in the way that I did was the most healthy thing. But we we don't have a chance to relive life, I suppose. Mm. We only have a chance to reassess it in mm. a way. Mm. And now I can say I, I'm lucky I have had a moment to process it. Mm. I love that you brought up love story because the love story, the theme is there throughout. Yeah. There are probably people who are listening right now and thinking, how do you write a story about cancer and, and, and title it love story? And I must say, Lauren, that before I read it, I thought, is this story just going to be about cancer and I'm not going to relate? Am I going to feel so uncomfortable that it's about cancer that I'm not going to want to relate? How am I going to try and connect with the story? Um, and as I've said it quite a few times, because it's such an intimate journey and because it is so beautifully written that we, we hear about the love story between you and Johnny, the love stories you have, the, the, the affairs with your children, you yeah. know, and what they, what they bring out in you. Your, your love story with your mom and and the things that you come to terms with and with your friends. I want your friends. Can I have them? (laughs) You can have them. They are there. (laughs) They are absolutely Uh, amazing. Wow. I'd like to speak a bit about the title and love if I can because I think it's important. It was quite a difficult title to give to the book because for many people cancer is such a difficult journey Mm. and I want to emphasize that in no way am I saying that there is love in the disease. It is an awful, terrible disease that I know many of your listeners will be battling with or have had experienced. This is a love story in the fullest sense of the word of love. It's not the Hollywood romance. It's the Shakespearean Romeo and Juliet Mm. sense of a love story. It's about the paradoxes of love. It's about the difficulties of love. It's about the trauma of love. And it's in that sense that it's a love story. And I think you mentioned some of the love stories I write about with my family and my husband. It's also a love story about myself. Mm. And I want that to be the ultimate message of the book because I think for cancer patients, the most difficult thing is that you are living in a world where your hope is so ruptured, where you have so little of the known life 
that you had before your diagnosis. You suddenly thrust into this world, which is so difficult that you have to learn to love yourself again. And I think that the book is about that kind mm-hmm. of love story. Mm-hmm. It's about how do you find hope when it doesn't feel like it's there mm-hmm. and where is the love embedded? And I found it by being open with my friends and my family in a way that I think many cancer patients struggle with. So that was in a sense what I thought was my gift in writing the book, to say, ask for help. Because if you're vulnerable and make yourself vulnerable, love is there to be found. Mm. So I sound religious No, <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's so like, true because what you've said is a lot of people do close up. You know, I, I had a cancer warrior on the show just a few weeks ago, and he was diagnosed with um, prostate cancer, and he never even told his wife. He went for oh. all of this treatment, and he held it because his mother had died just a few years before, and he just didn't want to do that. Can you imagine that? that I that, cannot that, imagine the pain. That journey of solitude. Oh, it was just really it. So I just want to read, and I, I don't, I want, don't want to keep going into you know reading parts. But when 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 we talk about the love story, and you say near the end of the book, you say about gratitude. I say every day. I wake up feeling a sense of gratitude from deep inside. I feel grateful to be alive, living in this extraordinary community, close in both geography and emotion. I'm grateful that my challenges have allowed the colors of the world to become more saturated, my interchanges to be more satisfying. I am richer and fuller than I ever could have imagined. Again, it is all of you in the room tonight who are responsible for that feeling. And you were talking to people. And I just want to say that there is love, a falling in love with life. Yeah. A a beautiful falling in love with life. And I think that what we don't understand is how proximity to death does change your sense of what life is about. Mm. If you allow it to. Because I think, again, I know so many people who struggle with anger. I struggled with anger. I'm not, not so many people out there. I had to overcome so much fear and anger in this journey that I understand that that is a possible place to stop. You can stop in your anger or fear. It's a very legitimate way to mm. respond to mm. a diagnosis. But I think that if you can go past that, there is something else on the other side. Um, and I think that I want to just make a point of advocacy, if you don't mind, because I think that there's still so much shame and silence around cancer and particularly breast cancer. This is Breast Mm. Cancer Awareness Month. I want to say to people out there, this is not a shameful diagnosis. This is not something to hide from your husband. This is something that we need to talk about and share because it is that shame that prevents our own ability to go on a journey Mm. when we are patient. Thank you for that, Lauren. Let's take a break, and we're going to continue. Stay with us. This is LifeLinks with a DL link. LifeLinks is a DL link fundraising initiative. 
Welcome back to the DL Link Show. 17 minutes past 12 o'clock. I'm Nikki Seberini and really loving being with you. Um, we'll be with you until 1 o'clock. Of course, this is the show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. I have Lauren Siegel in the studio. She's just written the most wonderful book called Cancer, A Love Story. Um, Lauren, just before the break, we were talking about breast cancer and the shame around it and not sharing it. And, you know, I just read what you wrote about gratitude and how you see life now and the colors are more saturated. But I'm sure all of those around you who went on that journey benefited in that way as well. Um, and it, the, the connection and the community is what stood out for me. Um, but we were talking about writing, um, how when you were younger, that's how you expressed a frustration or an anger or a disappointment. And you wrote letters because that's what you did. You, you really mm-hmm. took a lot of these letters and these emails and you put them together. Mm-hmm. And that's how you shared what was going on with family, mm-hmm. but also with Johnny, your mm-hmm. husband, mm-hmm. when you just, you couldn't talk to him and then you would write the letter and I I really want to I want to look at this I want to explore because for those who are listening who find it difficult to talk Mm. and find it difficult to express what a wonderful vehicle Mm. the written word to do something like that yeah I think that there are lots of dimensions to the written word I mean I used it as a way of communication because as I said it comes naturally to Mm. me but Mm. it's also something About reading the written word So when I was in my darkest places I also turned to reading Other people's writing That really inspired and helped me So I think it's both Using it, writing as a mm-hmm. tool mm-hmm. for yourself mm-hmm. if, if you have difficulty communicating in the spoken way or it just, it is so hard to communicate difficult emotions. And I, I'm, I'm going But even the, if it's not, sorry, to, if you're communicating to others, but you've got to communicate something and make sense of something in yourself. And, and writing it down is just. That's what I was going to say at some point as well, that I discovered what I was feeling in the act of writing, yeah. that there's something about that act that clarifies your mind in a way that when you in the world and sitting on a chair, just you cannot get to, mm. or I can't get to. Mm. I couldn't reach that place of clarity. Mm. But then I would also read others and the, the combination of the writing and the reading and the letters and the response was so important to me because it wasn't just that I wrote to people. It was that people wrote, wrote back. Mm. And what I didn't I had in the book, but edited out, were a lot of the emails that people wrote back. And you have to know that so much of my courage and bravery was from the responses that I got back from those letters. So let's look at, let's look at one of the reasons, another reason why I think that's such an important book. Because when I have read books and when I interview people, and especially women who have had breast cancer and they have a mastectomy, and we kind of gloss over it. It's not gloss over it. We just talk about it and we we don't really go into what that experience was like because I don't think people want to revisit that mm. experience. And the way you have written about your experience, first of all, making the decision, because, in fact, you were stage zero mm. when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah, the but, but your surgeon said to you, we, we recommend a double mastectomy. Mm. And you, you, I mean, you grappled. You, you didn't know mm. what to do, but you made the decision mm. to go for the, the surgery. 
Absolutely. And they're again going to writing. I would write lists about a mastectomy and a lumpectomy and myself yep. and all the pros and the cons and the fears associated with both because there is no one to give you any answers in this journey. And that is so difficult, Nikki. It's mm. one of the hardest things. You're living in a world where you're playing Russian roulette every single day. Is it going to come back the cancer at stage naught now? But you've had a melanoma before. What do you do about it? Do you have a preventative double mastectomy? Will that sort it out? Of course, in my case, it didn't. Mm. But at that point, I thought I was going for the gold standard yep. in treatment. Yep. I had to work it out. Mm. So, um, yeah, those were difficult decisions. And decisions are one of, I say in the book, I talk about decision fatigue because cancer patients will know that there are multiple decisions every day to be made when you're in treatment. When you talk, when you talk about the mastectomy, because I, I just want to go mm. and I, I want to explore mm. that a bit because it is, you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month and, and we've had the discussion with your lists and with you writing things down. I just want to write down what you've, what you had to face when it came to your mastectomy that you wrote down before you went in for the operation. I mean, I was there with you, you know, as I said, <laughs> we were holding hands. You didn't even know, but I was holding your hand. I now know I was. And you said, I'll lose the part of myself that I like the best. And I mm. love that. You always said, Oh, I love my breasts. I love my <laughs> breasts. And, and I just love that. And my most intimate part will be sucked away. I will lose my sexuality. Katya, your daughter, is an adolescent. How will she be affected by this? Johnny will stand by me, but will he really feel the same? I will not be the same. Can I really ever be the same? Johnny will be waiting outside the theater, just like we did with Katya. He will be carrying too much. I will be frightened by what I see when I wake up. Mm-hmm. I will not have nipples. I will not be able to look at myself. I will not be able to love myself or let Johnny love me. My kids will be scared to look at me. I will turn away from my life force. Others will look at me differently. The operations will go wrong. All my fears are irrelevant. I won't be here. Mm-hmm. I am dying. The cancer will still come back. I will have chemotherapy and more operations. I will have to go through more of this. I won't be able to find the strength and resilience. Life will never be the same. Mm. And when you, I mean, you've gone through that time and time, but when you read that now, sure. with the story with my yeah. eyes, because yeah. I wrote that list. It was called my worst fears list. And I wrote it in the middle of the night to a couple of my dearest girlfriends and I said to them I'm sending you this list because I can't hold it Mm. Um, and I think that that's what I'm talking about with sharing because I couldn't hold those fears Mm. I didn't know what to do with them and the terrible irony is you know my worst fear that it would still come back happened but by writing that and getting the responses again that I did from my close girlfriends I just managed to make the decision to do it and to have the mastectomy. It took a lot of bravery um, to say yes to that. I would have preferred not to. Mm, have. <laughs> mm. So it was one of those moments that you've chosen to read out that was maybe the hardest moment yeah. for me on the journey. Yeah. It was so hard for me to read it. And as I said, when I've had warriors and they've spoken about a mastectomy and this, you know, those fears mm. going through all of, all of that, all those thoughts going through the mind and all of a sudden I connected with that. 
And yeah, it was it, it was very uh, moving on on so many so many different. But levels. let me put a little bit of a hopeful spin yes. to say it wasn't as bad when it happened mm. as I thought it would be. Mm. And that's the thing about fears is that they're always worse than you think they're going to be. So expressing them helps. It's the first step, and then you know you have the operation, and it is a very difficult operation, but it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. I'm not going to go through. Every step and every stage Because I want people to buy your book And I want them to read it And I want them to go on the journey with you You spoke about fears I mean, we've got to talk about your fear of needles <laughs> You know, I mean, this was a huge I mean, here you have you, As I said, cancer Four times needles You have to make friends with needles Because, you know, this is, this is part of your journey The experience, the healing How did you do it? So I, I, I'm only partially laughing Because when you have a phobia of needles like I do, and you have to overcome it because you're facing 72 needle jabs, as I expected from my 18 chemo sessions I calculated, um, I really had to find a way to deal with this. And I did it by, again, being very, very purposeful in seeking help. Yes. I went to an acupuncturist, which was a total disaster. Total disaster. When I read that, I thought, what was she thinking? What was she thinking? I thought that flooding myself would help. These psychologists who talk about flooding are wrong. (laughs) But I think that the, the healers that I went to, the people who taught me how to breathe, the teachers, People who taught me how to meditate, my mindfulness instructor, my reflexologist, my masseur, all the people I reached out for in, and of course the nurse who ultimately became my best friend Mm. because she was the one who had to deal with this phobia. Mm. They all helped me and I got better, not in one straight line. I didn't like go from zero to hero, but I certainly by chemo numbers 16, 17, 18, I wasn't fainting. I wasn't having vasovascular reaction. It's a very real thing. It's very, phobias. very real so, thing. But you, but you, but you, as I, you know, you said all these people helped you. You had this Marissa. This coach. I had a life oh, coach. Oh, I loved, I loved Marissa. And it was <laughs> amazing how she made you look at needles mm. and you saw different connections with needles. Can you just, before we take a break, please just explain that, Lauren. What she said to me is on the phone, she said, give me three positive associations with needles. And by some complete chance, I happened to be working on a project in Boipatong with a group of women who's family had died in the Boipatong massacre and we were working with them to make tapestries of their stories and teaching them needlework and I'd watched this immense healing that had happened with these women and I told her the story and she was blown away. She said that is the positive association create a new link for yourself and so of course I went out and started a sewing group because I forget that as one of my, I thought yes that's what I have to do. I have to sew. I have to feel the needle. I have to see it in a new way. And that was one of the strategies that helped One me. of the strategies. Wow, all these strategies. <laughs> We're going to come back to it, Lauren. Just phenomenal. But I, I just want to take this time just to welcome our guests because we, because they do wonderful, wonderful work with breast cancer survivors and they're called the, um, 
uh, reach for recovery. Um, they, in fact, they do a whole lot of fundraisers, which we're going to be talking about in a moment. Um, but these are people, and they're fundraising for people who don't have access to resources. You started your book and you said, you, right at the outset, you said, I have to say I was privileged. That not from the experiences, but privileged because of my experience that I had access to all the treatment that I could want. Um, and here we're talking about a, an organization, Reach for Recovery or Helping Women with Breast Cancer, who don't have access to those resources. Um, you know, they don't have the coach and they don't, they, they don't reach out. Um, so, so that the, that, that there are these organizations around is very important. I think we need to talk about them and we need to highlight the work that they are doing. So Stephanie Jacobs, who is the chairperson um, of Reach for Recovery, is on the line. Stephanie, are you there? I'm here. Hello. Oh, welcome. Lovely, lovely <laughs> to have you on the show, Stephanie. Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to join the chat. And also, <laughs> I'm going to introduce you. Lauren is in the studio and Edith is in the studio. Yes, hi, that's my friend. Hi, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Lauren. Hello. Um, yeah, so let me welcome um, Edith. Um, uh, you've been sitting very quietly, oh, yeah. and, listening. Well, can I just say, um, I'm, I'm overcome because, Lauren, I think what you've said and what you've done will give so much hope and put such a positive light on what you've been through and what cancer is all about. Yes, it's not a great place to be and it's not but I think the way you've dealt with it and your dignity and your I mean it's just incredible mm. I really take my hat off to you Thank well you. done Thank mm. you. absolutely Edith yeah. Stephanie are you yes, there can you I, hear us I'm still here I can fabulous Stephanie tell us a little bit about reach for recovery what, what do you do Yes, well, Reach for Recovery is an organization, a volunteer-driven organization with a specific and unique focus on breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So we give and uh, emotional and practical support to newly diagnosed breast cancer patients. And, uh, you know, all of our volunteers have been through a cancer journey themselves. So we wear the T-shirt. And, you know, we've been there. So, you know, with our own example of hope and recovery, we then visit a patient in hospital shortly after she's been diagnosed. We bring along um, practical gifts, information, but, you know, most importantly, we bring along our own example of hope and recovery. Mm -hmm. And with that, you know, we've usually a very good rapport and identification with the patient. Thereafter, we keep telephonic contact. We invite her to visit our meetings. And, you know, maybe in one or two years, if she feels like it, she would become a volunteer for the organization herself. So that's in short who we are, and we have a very proud history of servicing in this country for the past five oh fifty years. Wow, fifty years, Stephanie. Yes, and how we have just things celebrated in July? She was well, well, happy, happy birthday! What a celebration! Fifty years. How have things evolved in those fifty years? If you had to look at what you were facing, I mean, I know that the statistics are horrific. One in eight women, um, they say, will have breast cancer. Yes, yes, we have just been given new stats um, just like earlier this month. So it's in South Africa, one in 28 women will be affected. And, you know, our support service is, um, started off in 1967 
And at that time, you know, we did visit the patient, but years have come, and we and we uh, and at that time, we maybe did not have all the practical items to give to her, like a temporary breast prosthesis yes. and all the information. But you know, the service today has evolved so much that Reach for Recovery now also has since 2011 our Ditto project which is the creative name that was given to um, the, the project to provide women from low-income groups with a prosthesis, a silicone prosthesis, after breast removal surgery. So since 2011, we have, you know, we created this fund and um, that is our aim, is to make sure that every woman who needs it and um, may not have the funds for it, will be will be able to access a silicone breast prosthesis. That is really such a um, important part of her recovery. You know, may, can you just explain what is an external breast prosthesis? How does it work? Yes. Yeah, you know the way it works is that um, sometimes a woman after a breast removal surgery, she may have a few options. Mm -hmm. She may decide not to have reconstruction. She may not be able to afford reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Or in the third place, you know, um, she's been through so much surgery that she may just not want to undergo any more surgery to have um, a a reconstructed breast. So then her only option to look balanced again would be to wear a prosthesis. And this silicone prosthesis is something that is worn inside of the bra. Mm -hmm. It has the look and feel of a real breast. And I always say that if, if it passes the hug test, so if somebody would hug you, they would not know that you are actually wearing a silicone prosthesis to replace the missing breast. And, you know, we believe that it is such a gift of hope mm. to a woman mm. to just enable her to look balanced again, to feel confident again, and to just put this negative experience behind her and, you know, move on to to, to, to living a positive life again. Mm. What, what um, I mean, you, you, is this what the a lot of the money for this fundraiser that's coming up is a lot of money going to that Ditto project? You're saying all of it, yes. Edith? Yes. Yes, yes. Like um, a, a Ditto prosthesis could cost us up to an average of more than 850 rand mm-hmm. per prosthesis. Mm-hmm. And yes, with the money donated to us from the Plain for Pink, money goes directly to supporting those women. Wow. That's so. fantastic, Stephanie. What else do you do besides doing that? You said you provide support. How do you find out, um, where, you know, when someone is being diagnosed and how far reaching is it? How far reaching in terms of going into communities, rural areas? Where do you go? Yes, you know, with our beautiful, supportive uh, track record of 50 years of service, we have a very good understanding and relationship with most of the hospitals Mm -hmm. and doctors. So what usually happens when the patient is in hospital and had the operation, the nursing staff, the doctor, the social worker, the physiotherapist, 
Or maybe her family would call us and say, look, the, the, this patient, Mrs. X has had the operation, please will you visit her? And then we just, our core centers, we call it core centers, but it's doing just a volunteer manning the phone. We then arrange for a volunteer to visit her in hospital and, you know, take her the little comfort kit, which comprises of a temporary procedure and um, information and um you know, a, a, a little a, um, bag, a little pillow for underarm comfort, a little bag to put the drain in. And that is how we actually get the patients referred to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that is, um, a, a, that's the one part. The other part, of course, also we have support group meetings where these new patients are invited to attend. And we have brilliant speakers. And I heard a little bit of Lauren's part uh, just now talking about different um, caregivers who helped her. And this is it. But at the support group meetings, you get those people in. Come mm. and talk to us about, for example, aromatherapy mm. or, for example, about a medical thing. So that's another facet of our support. Mm. And then, of course, um, there's the training to train volunteers, extensive training over a couple of days to train volunteers to actually do the support service. And then we're also very passionate about breast health education and we regularly do talks and have information tables, especially in pink October. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wonderful, Stephanie. I want to, Lauren, I mean, I I spoke about a little bit earlier this community of friends um, Mm -hmm. and that they all pulled together. So you had this group of your coffee ladies and they kind of became like your laughter ladies before chemo. They, they just wanted you share something with you that would make you laugh and you had a next door neighbor who would put a poem in your post box and people dropping off food and just all the a community around you supporting you and people that again when I've spoken to worries they talk about the importance of the community and not long ago I had a woman that I was talking to said she was all alone she's a mm. single mom she says all I'm, I just wish someone could have helped me when I got back from chemotherapy and I just mm. thought about this huge contrast and what a what a difference that makes mm. for you i think it was a huge thing but i really have to salute organizations like reach for recovery and if i may say also the breast health foundation that i'm now associated with and the profits for the book are actually going to the breast health foundation i just wanted to oh, mention wow. that somewhere Fantastic. because it's I think my privilege gave me that community around me. Mm. But as you say, so many women don't have it. And I cannot imagine how lonely they are. And the wonderful work of these volunteers, mm-hmm. um, it, it blows my mind. When I'm at the Helen Joseph Clinic and looking at those breast cancer patients who are newly diagnosed and being supported by counselors, it, it, it really changes the trajectory of their whole experience. Yeah. Because they do have a community mm-hmm. around them. Just to be held. Just, Just to be held. To be held. Yeah. Yeah. So Stephanie, uh. oh, my, my congratulations back to you <laughs> because really yeah. your work is amazing. Amazing. Just incredible. So Edith, how did you come across this wonderful organization? Well, I've walked a little bit of a journey, but not, not personally in that my father, uh, passed away from cancer and it was a very long and painful process and through that I became involved with the Cancer Association of South Africa, Cancer and did volunteer work in that we uh, counseled some patients um, we brought uh, again patients in that couldn't afford much of anything into days where we looked after them, gave them something to smile about, gave them a lovely tea, whatever the case was 
And then through cancer, I met the lovely Reach for Recovery woman. And when I actually saw what they were doing, mm-hmm. and it, it really touched me because they were making a huge difference to women who really can't afford what we can mm-hmm. and don't have that that platform. Mm-hmm. And they just go out and do this as volunteers. Yeah. And, you know, they, some of them have their own jobs, but they make time. And they are just incredible women. And so I became more involved on that side. And, um, it's been, it's been a lovely journey. And they, you know, I can't, I can't do enough for them. Mm-hmm. So when playing for pink was born, uh, which happens again now at the end of the month, we said, let's put this towards the, the Ditto project because it makes such a huge difference to those women. Um, I mean, the smiles on their faces. Once they have the, the prosthesis hope, off. Yeah, the, the balance. And, and it's an amazing, it's a, it's an amazing thing because it looks like a breast. It feels like a breast. It's just incredible. So they, it really gives them hope. We don't want any woman to be walking around with tissues in her bra or socks mm. or newspaper mm-hmm. to try and get that form. Of course. We want to be able to give every single woman who can't afford something like that. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Let's take a break and then let's talk about the fundraiser. We'll be right back. This is Life Links with a DL link. If you are in business and you would like to support the DL link, Consider advertising or sponsoring the show. Thanks so much for staying with us. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. In the studio, we have Lauren Siegel, who's just written a wonderful, wonderful book called um, Cancer, A Love Story. We have Edith Fenter, who is going to be telling us about a great fundraising event, um, and the money goes to Reach for Recovery and the chairperson of Reach for Recovery, Stephanie Jacobs. So, Edith, just before the break, we were yes. talking about these wonderful silicon prosthesis and how, yes. what a difference it makes. And that every woman should, who's had the mastectomy and who isn't able to have reconstructive surgery, should have access to this. Oh, absolutely. And, but it takes money, honey. Of course. Everything. 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 <laughs> exactly. And that's where you come in because that's, you're so good at fundraising well, and putting stunning events together. Well, that's where we can help and mm-hmm. add our support to Reach right. for Recovery. Uh, we put on an event called Playing for Pink. It's a polo event. It's a very glamorous event. Do they wear pink? Oh, yeah. The, the, everybody's in pink. Oh, the gorgeous. gentlemen, everybody. <laughs> the, the, we turn the Ananda Club pink oh, for stunning. the day. Yeah. And we have a different theme each year, but it is around the pink. And it's around the polo. And there's a lot of lifestyle Amazing things that happen, fashion, uh, great entertainment, on-field entertainment. Our teams are invitational teams. One is the South African team. The other is this year uh, Team Africa because we have players from Kenya, from uh, uh, um, Zimbabwe, etc. And they come in. And, in fact, one of the players in our Team Africa is a breast cancer survivor. So it even gives it more heart. And that's what I want. I want people to have a fantastic day. They don't need to feel guilty about sipping the champagne, 
eating beautiful food, experiencing lovely pamper things that go on in the polar room because we had this like mini Santon city where Clarence is there pampering the ladies with makeup, GHD with hair, Soho doing beautiful manis and pedis and all of those good oh, things. Sounds too our wonderful. perfume oh. people, <laughs> our jewelry people, reach for a recovery are there so they can give information. This year, what is really important, because I want to reinforce the reason why this happens, is that we actually have a mammogram machine there. Mm-hmm. We have a, it's set up in the polar room. So if anybody actually wants to have a mammogram, really? they can. Yes. Really? And this is the first time ever. That is amazing. So for me, this gives it even more meaning, and it brings it home even more. What happens on the field, uh, we have Jaguar that come in, the, 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 we have 20 of the, of, of the, um, survivors of Reach for Recovery ladies who come onto the field in a beautiful tableau and they release balloons. People sitting as, as the audience are watching and what happens there. Well, mostly people are in tears because it's suddenly, they relate and, Remember, a lot of the, the guests that are there have had f- members or friends or whatever who have been through breast cancer or cancer of any type. So it's, there's, a, there's a great heart there, but it reinforces the reason of why we're sitting there enjoying because they've all paid. Corporates come in hugely. We've got amazing sponsors in, in Celsius and, in fact, Tanqueray are, are sponsors this year as well and, and many, many others um, and great support from from. Uh, corporates who take hospitalities and public who can just buy tickets for the day and come and have this fabulous, crazy, fabulous. mad pink day, yeah. pink day. <laughs> and then this year we have an after parties. <laughs> you don't have to stop after the game is. There's a party over. after the There's party. There's a party after the party and it'd be doing it on a Saturday this year, not a Sunday. So people have Sunday to actually recover. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what, the 28th of October? And that's the 28th of October. So, uh, Are they tickets this, available? Yes, okay. yes. On Ticket Pro, people can go if they, if they need to. Please contact me through, through our office, through our website. I'm happy to help in whichever way we can. And, um, really, I, I just encourage people to come and see what it's about. It's a third year. It has, Grown. I don't know what happened this year, but suddenly all the sweat and the hard work from the first two years just suddenly took wings. And we just don't have enough space and enough of everything to be able to accommodate what we want well, to. Well, that's good news. Mm. It means more money. And we're pampering, means we the, more we're pampering the gentleman as well this year. We've got a lovely barber, gentleman legends barber. Uh, he's got a great business, and he's coming in to also style the guys. So they're very into those buff, buff beards <laughs> and the hair. Yes. Have you seen now with the, the chemists and all of the oh, yes. all and they're all these yes. products for oh, men yes. and their beards? It's quite lovely. <laughs> really. I quite like it. And, so. of course, the misnomer about breast cancer yes. that men can't get it. I mean, this, oh, yes. this, this, survive, this warrior that I spoke about who had and kept very much to himself, he also then a few years later got breast cancer. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And uh, the shame around that and also mm. you know the stigma around that so that's why we want to have these conversations because we have to because and i think that's what's so about. important you need to talk about it and i'm sure lauren that's what you felt by about experiencing talking putting it down in a book it's a kind of therapy as well and and also you sharing so you are giving other women and men and families out there hope 
to say, well, you know, it's not a death sentence. It doesn't have to be a death sentence. It's, or it's, and it's something that you can deal with and to have that support around you, I think, is huge. Huge. Huge, huge, huge. Huge. How do you feel when you, t- when you hear about, when you hear mammograms? I mean, it's a bit contentious. I mean, you're not a doctor, Lauren, but I mean, you've been there, you, you in it. We, uh, the, the mammogram is, is, it's so very important. There are a lot yeah. of people who are saying that we're having mammograms too often. Look, can this can There's a lot of contra. Yeah, okay. there is. There's, there's the pros and the cons. I mean, if one doesn't want to go that route, then at least go and have a um, a scan. Mm. You know that 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 you can. I'm in two minds. I don't know. Mm. You know, a lot of also what is going to be coming out in the latest government policy is also around self-examination. Oh, no, that's huge. You know, the lack of mammogram machines in this country is so sad, Mm -hmm. and the lack of diagnostics, which is really the first step Mm -hmm. of understanding about breast cancer, is is learning how to diagnose Mm -hmm. it, is is a a phenomenal... I had my head under the table when I think how the government has failed women in this and men in this country mm-hmm. by not having those machines available. But there is now this trend towards self-examination. Nurses are not trained in the very basics mm-hmm. of how to detect breast cancer in mm-hmm. clinics. Mm-hmm. So there's so much mm-hmm. work to be done Huge. by organizations and fundraisers Huge. like yourself just to get that basic tool. And that's what we do, and that's what Reach for Recovery does as well. And on the day of, of the Playing for Pink Polo, there's all that information, and mm-hmm. they will be uh, – they show you how to do self-examination. I mean, there are there's booklets, you know, there's everything there to say – do it because you know what it's you and your partner your partner will discover it most probably before you even do because they know your body just as well as what you do and suddenly maybe there is that little uh, spot or lump or, or whatever that wasn't there the month before and it's so important that is often the first point of actually discovering I want to talk about I actually want to talk about that because there's the fear isn't there Lauren I mean that fear of because you you can talk to that very much so you had the double mastectomy and then you started to develop a lump on your chest Mm. and your doctor said don't worry it's scar tissue and the radiologist says no way no no cancer this is scar tissue and you think about, we're talking about self-examination, and you're talking about, Edith, your partner mm. finding mm. something. That fear, that I think that's why a lot of people don't want to do because they don't want to go there. There you had had cancer twice. You've got this lump growing on your chest, and you're listening to your doctor who's saying, this is just scar tissue. And it's changing, mm. but this is just scar tissue because you want to, with every part of your being, <laughs> believe it's that not. it's just scar mm. tissue, which it wasn't. Absolutely. Talk to that fear. You know, again, it goes, that moment goes back to my fear of needles. Having a biopsy in a needle inserted into your breast Mm. is a very difficult Mm. and painful procedure. Mm. So to the woman out there and Edith saying here on my right that you have it, it is (laughs) horrific. So if you are being reassured that this is just scar tissue, you really want to believe Mm. that. Mm. And I think you also cannot think that you could get cancer a third time. That was part of my problem is right. that I thought never again. Not possible. Not possible. But for the woman out there who listening, I think that the fear instinct is such a basic instinct. It's so understandable. And 
part of what we have to educate about is if you detect breast cancer early quickly. you and quickly, it is a curable cancer. Mm. And the problem in this country, Nikki, that we are seeing now in hospitals is that most of the women come with late stage diagnoses mm. where the fear is legitimate because it's not curable anymore. Mm. And nine times as many of those women die as do in the States. Sure. And that is because we don't diagnose early. So okay. this whole question of early diagnosis, mm. self-examination, the mammograms Edith's talking about promoting education. And I think also Critical. if it's in yeah. your family. Yeah. So if you had a daughter, mm. I mean, they, she would start early with, you know, keeping, you know, just watching for any kind of sign and maybe going for an early mammogram or or, or, or scan or whatever the case might be because I think that's important. Absolutely. You know, there is there a greater chance then of obviously developing breast cancer? Well, Lauren, you, I mean, you went through all of that. You had the, you looked at the genealogy, you looked at family history and, and Johnny, your husband is a doctor and mm-hmm. he's in the, the medical insurance industry as well. And he sent um, samples to the United States, and he looked at what, what's it called, genetic, you, the DNA yes. of the tumor. That's yeah. it. Um, and as I know we're talking about you know family, mm. but but you had access to all of those things, and it made a big difference to your treatment. Am I correct? It completely changed my treatment. There you go. And your doctor was a little resistant. My oncologist yeah, was oncologist. more than resistant. Uh-huh. She did not want me to have. Um, to go on another protocol mm-hmm. because it was out of protocol, my chemo treatment, because my genetic test had showed that I would not be responsive to the adriamycin, the red devil, which I really didn't want to have yes. because of the side effects. Mm-hmm. And I think also to listeners out there is it, it, to, that gives hope today is there's so many new advances in terms of diagnostics of tumors and the way that treatment mm-hmm. happens these days. And it it's not just about me having access to resources. This is something that medical aids are now providing for. Genetic testing is becoming more standardized. Is it provided for? It is provided for. There are there are ways that you can have your tumor tested. There are there's access to international labs which have vast experience in terms of different tumor types because not every breast cancer is the same and not every cancer is the same and it's important to know that Mm -hmm. they're very different kinds of, of cancers that respond very differently and we are getting much more sophisticated in being able to test and treat um, we're living actually in a very exciting age f- in terms of cancer treatment. It's wonderful to hear. I mean, that is wonderful. Uh, and also, I just want to also talk about that whole rush factor. You know, you've been diagnosed with cancer and your doctor says, this is the situation and this is the option. And, and so often, you know, we have, again, I'm, I'm just, I'm just telling you what warriors have told me and then they find themselves in some kind of treatment and they look back and they think, but why did I do that? Why didn't I do this? There's this rush factor. And you spoke about decision fatigue as well. Stop at that moment. I heard a woman phone me yesterday who had read my book and her doctor gave her a diagnosis and put her into an operating theater for a mastectomy the next day. And I said to her, you have got to be joking. How do you even begin to process? Of course, there is a need for treatment. And when I'm not saying wait for months, but take weeks to think about what you want for yourself and how you're going to get it and prepare yourself for what it lies ahead because it is so difficult to go through it. Sure. As Stephanie said, as we all know, that time 
is is on your side much more than the doctors allow for. Mm. So empower mm. I yourself. I think that's very important. That's such an I always, important. I always message. say it's your body. It's mm. your body, and you are that. allowed mm. to take time and to make the decisions so that you true. want to make. So true, really. very, mm. very true. I just want to take the the opportunity to um, very quickly welcome our DL Link Angel um, Shirley Isaacs, um, who's been waiting very patiently on the phone. She is a volunteer. We talk about the work um, that all these organisations do, and the DL Link right up there, as I said earlier. Um, Shirley, welcome. Lovely, Hi. lovely to have you on the show. I'm not an angel, I must tell you, I, I, well. I thank you, Link, for everything they do for me and my family and... Um, well, we're, we're yeah. calling, we are calling you a DL Link angel. Tell us very no, quickly, no, Shirley, no. about the DL Link soccer party that you had. Well, it was the most inspirational um, party I've ever been to and uh, Rabbi Joseph, wow, what a, what a, what a wonderful talk it was, what a wonderful I call it a shiur. I went in. I didn't know what it was going to be about. And I must tell you, it was absolutely... I walked out feeling a lot, uh, feeling very good, very inspired by his talk. So it it was Um, a wonderful time. It really, really was. He spoke about what the sukkah meant. And we, none of us, we all go into our sukkahs and we, we think, well, you know, it's a sukkah and we go in. We don't think about... What it is, and he said, "Trust." And I, he, we think about it. It's like we walk. Uh, we've got our beautiful homes, and we go into our sukkah. And uh, he said, "You know that it's, it's um, that that we don't realize about how um, the sukkah is it, that it's we, we that it's that it's not. Um, I don't know how to even talk. So really, uh, that it's uh, how wonderful it is to go into a sukkah and realize that the people stay in things like these homes like that. So it made the whole experience just a lot more meaningful, which is which meaningful. is kind of like what we've really been talking about during the show, is that all of these experiences extracting meaning out of mm. out of everything, really. Well, Shirley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for telling us about the DL Link Sukkah Party and um, continue with your wonderful work. And thank you for, for sharing some of it. It's been lovely having you. Thanks. And Carmen Emanuel just asked me, she sent me a note just to say about the Dear Link, uh, Bake next Thursday. Okay, yes. That is, for people that can't go to the big Bake, that it's at Waverly Shore yes. Hall at quarter past three. Quarter past three next Thursday. Yes. Wonderful. For people that can't go to the big Bake and she sends regards. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you for sharing that with us. Okay. Lovely having you. Take care, Thank Shirley. You. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. So time flies when you disappear into another little realm, and, you know, it's been an hour. It has really been sure. wonderful having you on the show. Edith, thank you. Such All the pleasure. best for the fundraiser. Thank you so much. The 28th, yes. the tickets available. It's a marvelous event. It is beautiful. Going to it is very, very, very good has cause. a huge That's heart. That's important. A huge, That's huge what is heart. important. Yes. Lauren, thank you. I had a million more questions. Just know that you've touched me and you've touched many others, and you will continue to touch. It is not just a book for people who are going through cancer it is a beautiful story it's falling in love with life 
and it's extracting whatever you possibly can out of life experiences. But for those who are going through the journey, what sharing the advice at the end, it's, it's a must have book. Everyone has to get this book. Cancer, a love story, memoir of a four time cancer survivor, Lauren Siegel. I salute you, Lauren. Thanks so it's much. It's been Nikki. wonderful having you on the show. It's been amazing to be in the studio. Thank, thank you. you. And thank inspiring. you for listening. It's been lovely being back. I look so forward to being with you next Thursday. For me, Nikki Seberini, take care. Goodbye.